In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Fingerprints found on drug wraps led to a four-year prison sentence for Christopher James Kennedy. Case closed as far as the criminal justice system is concerned. Everyone moves on to the next case or story. Not Christopher. He complains of being fitted up. Yeah, I know that's what they all say, but what if he's right and we're wrong? I'm not here to champion his case, or anybody else's case for that matter. But I am interested in the other side of the story. There's always two sides of a story, or different perspectives. So what can we learn by just listening? You contacted me via social media, wanting to share your story. Why did you contact me in the first place? Uh, I was a victim of a miscarriage of justice and during my research into trying to overturn my conviction, I came across yourself, uh, stories about yourself that you was in a similar position and I thought you might be able to help me to overturn my conviction as you've got an experience of doing it in the past and how difficult it actually is. Well, why do you think someone like me has the power to do that when it's only the Court of Appeal who can actually overturn your conviction? It just feels like you need a bit of support from somewhere and there isn't much support in the criminal justice system to help you with appeals and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you, 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 you mentioned, Chris, that you thought you'd approach someone like me to try and help you. What is it you think someone like me can do to help someone like you? Because at the end of the day, it's only the court of appeal who can quash somebody's conviction if they believe that person has been wrongfully convicted. Um, like I said, it seems like a daunting task to do on your own. And I was phoning a lot of solicitors around the country and everybody just wanted pain privately. So... I thought I might come to yourself just for a bit of guidance and that of like, how to go about things and stuff. Talk me through what happened on the day you were arrested, what you were arrested for and what happened at the police station. OK, so um, basically I was at a friend's house. I was staying at a friend's house at the time and there was a vehicle outside that was selling for someone else. Another friend, a female friend, somebody came to look at the vehicle and asked for a test drive. Um, 
as a buy and sell cars, I wouldn't give him a test drive unless he gave me some form of deposit in my hand. He gave me £500 to hold um, as a deposit. Um, and we ended up getting pulled by the police. Uh, the guy ended up running off from the vehicle, um, leaving me and my, uh, two of our occupants in the car. And basically the police were asking us who was the driver, what was his details and stuff, and we didn't tell him. But because we didn't tell him, he was threatening us that we'd be arrested for theft of motor vehicle, but the car wasn't actually stolen. So I was a bit confused with him saying that. In the end, because we didn't tell him who the driver was, he ended up uh, arresting us and taking us to the police station. When we got to the police station, uh, we was interviewed. Uh, apparently, they found a small number of drugs on the floor in the car. So we was interviewed and questioned about that. I gave a full account explaining what had happened, that was going on a test drive, and that I didn't have possession of any drugs. I didn't know there was in the car. And then all three people was bailed. So on answering bail, only I was charged out of the people that was arrested. And you know, I was a bit confused to why I was charged and stuff. So when I was asking my solicitors why was I charged, they were saying that the police are saying there was fingerprints found on the drug weapons. So I was saying, well, that's impossible because I haven't, I haven't touched them drug weapons and that. So like, where's the evidence that's saying that? He's saying, oh, we haven't got disclosure of it yet. And we was going to court asking for disclosure of, you know, of this evidence. You know, you got me on a charge, you got me facing a trial, but there's no disclosure. Let me just pause you there because it doesn't make much sense to me. You're saying to me that you're a car dealer, a second-hand car dealer? Yeah, yeah. And you're saying to me on one occasion you had a car outside that you were selling. Somebody came to have a look at buying that car. Yeah. And they wanted to test drive the car. Yeah. But before you would allow somebody to test drive the car, you wanted a deposit. Yes. And you took £500 cash from that individual to test drive the car. That's correct. And how many cars did you have in your car sale business at the time? I wasn't a business. I was just an individual where I'd just like see a bargain. I'd if it's say 500 quid and I think I'd sell it for eight. I'd just buy it and then I'd put it up for sale again. So this was the only car you had at the time that you were selling? Yeah, and it wasn't actually my car. I was selling it on behalf of a girl that didn't really have much experience in selling cars she had a different car at the time so um, she asked you to sell the car yeah that's correct yeah somebody came sorry for the interrogation chris but i'm just trying to understand what we're talking yeah. about here yeah so this person came to look at the car yeah. how did you advertise the car how did they become aware of the car i was a friend of a friend um somebody from the area that um inquired about it and then they came to look at it in the evening it was pretty late it was dark and stuff like that, um, hence why I wasn't really comfortable going on my own. As I was at my friend's house, he just come, as he, you know, he just jumped in the car anyway. And um, so you, a friend, and the person who wanted to buy the car got into the car and went for a drive around the block. And then while you were driving around the block, you got pulled over by the police. I think they went past the car and they had an AMPR camera in, and because the vehicle wasn't in use, it wasn't insured. I think it's triggered off their AMPR camera which has made him spin around and come after the vehicle. So the person that was driving has obviously clucked him, come in in his rear view mirror and just alighted the vehicle. Um, obviously, the, he wasn't insured to drive the car and it was actually legal, so he would have ended up getting points and the car seized. That's why he said that he ran away. So when the police approached the car... There was also a female in the car as well. So there was three so there were you, female. there was you, your mate, the the female who you were trying to sell the car for no, and no, the driver no, who no, ran no, off. <laughs> just a separate female she was just like actually nothing to do with it she just happened to be there at the time when this was happening and because we was in my friend's house she had to come along for the for the journey sort of thing she was just it was just coincidentally that she was there she was nothing to do with the situation 
Did you know the person who came to buy the car? Is this the first person, first time you'd met or seen this person? No, I know, I know him, yeah. I know of him. I know of him, yeah. But you didn't trust him? No, nah, because it wasn't my car. So if anything went wrong, I would have ended up footing the bill as it did go wrong. So when the police pulled you over, he jumped out of the car and ran off because he didn't have any insurance or he wasn't qualified to drive or something. So he ran off. Insurance issue. Um, obviously, he was only test driving that car. So if he would have got pulled, he potentially would have got six points on his license for no insurance. So I think he just thought and took the chance, the opportunity to run away. So when the police then started to question you and the other two occupants, the boy and the girl in the car, they found drugs. Well, that wasn't how it happened. They opened the door and the driver's seat was empty. So they was leaning in the car saying, who's the driver? And we're just looking at him. And then he's saying, if you don't tell us, if you don't tell us the driver's details, we'll lock you up for theft of motor vehicle. Because then we're saying, well, the car's not stolen. So you can't do that. He said, well, what's the driver's details and that? Nobody spoke to him and give him any details. And then it happened pretty fast within about three minutes. We didn't speak, and then we literally was under arrest, and that was it. it was putting handcuffs, putting police car, take to the police station. So only we got to the police station that they said that they'd found a small number of drugs in the car. So he was further under arrested. Where did they find the drugs in the car? Was it in the seat that the driver was in? Your so seat? They say, they're saying that they found it um, in the footwell, the front passenger footwell. And, and who was sitting in the front passenger footwell? Uh, the, the the female. Okay, and so. The police found what quantity of drugs, how much money worth of drugs, and what kind of drug was it? So they said that they found Class A drugs, and they said that it's nine and seven. So nine and seven wraps. So they say nine wraps of um, heroin and six wraps of cocaine, so that five pound or ten pound deal, so quite a small amount. So just a few hundred pounds worth of drug. So when you were arrested at the police station, what happened next? Um, so we're interviewed, put in the police cell, then we're interviewed, and then uh, we're eventually released pending further investigation apparently so what did the police say to you about the drugs they found so they're just asking questions and stuff saying like um well, does it belong to you and obviously i answered no i didn't know it was there i haven't touched it my fingerprints won't be on there just basically answered the questions and what about the other two the boy and the girl that were in the car with you they, they went no comment i've got a copy of their interview they actually said no comment all the way so they didn't answer any of the police questions no so you were released on bail, all three of you, pending further investigation? That's correct, yeah. And then what happened, Chris? I was eventually charged in um, on July the 2nd, 2012. Um, as I said, after the charge, I couldn't believe that only I was charged and why I was charged, or, you know, I was absolutely devastated, to be honest with you. So I'm trying to ask my solicitor for clarification of why, and he's saying that, you know, we'll have to wait for the paperwork to come through and stuff. Well, that paperwork never came through. Um, leading all the way up until the trial where we're actually having an emergency hearing saying hold on there's disclosure issues here you've got this client facing a trial in a couple of, in, a, in a month or two's time and you haven't given no information or no proof basically the trial day came and with that remained the position there was no disclosure I sat down with a barrister and he tried to show me a fingerprint document it's called West Midlands Police Fingerprint Bureau document and they basically tried to say to me that I should plead guilty today because they've got my fingerprints so I'm looking at this document. I'm saying, well, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's a piece of paper. And I said, the fact that you're telling me my fingerprints are on something that I, I haven't touched is like impossible. So I'm not going to be pleading guilty to anything on the basis of that piece of paper. And like he's very forceful in saying, well, if you don't plead guilty today, you'll end up getting four years. But if you plead guilty today, you'll get two. And basically, I felt like he was literally blackmailing me to go guilty get there and then on that piece of paper, which I didn't agree with. So 
Just explain to me, Chris, what was the piece of paper? It was like a West Midlands Police Fingerprint Bureau form. I can show it. Yeah, I've actually got a copy here if you, if you want to see it. But, um, yeah, so, you know, when he's telling me that, I know my fingerprints are not on something because I haven't touched it. So we're in a disagreement and he seemed to believe that piece of paper over what I'm saying. And so I sacked him immediately. As soon as the conference ended, I rang the solicitor and said, I don't want that barrister to represent me because he's literally forcing me to go guilty. And like, he doesn't seem like he believes what I'm saying. So therefore he can't represent me. So it's a bit confusing to be honest with you. Um, so on the trial day, now the files come through now and the rest of the documents, but when you're reading the documents, uh, the continuity, of the exhibits doesn't seem right. So look, what you'll get, you'll get an officer saying that I took the drugs out of the police station to take to the forensic lab personally. So this is the officer in charge, the one that charged me. Um, so these statements are obviously predating the charge and he's explaining that he decided to take the drugs from the police station to the fingerprint lab personally in his car. You know, I don't think that the, the integrity of the exhibits should be transported just by, by one officer alone in the car not only that when it gets to the next person in the chain of custody of the exhibits the wraps have now changed so the, the officers say that they found nine wraps and seven wraps but the guy after them being transported by the police in these exhibit bags to the forensic lab they've now turned into 10 wraps and six wraps so obviously i'm saying well hold on you're giving me paperwork but it's inconsistent but, you know, but the, the inconsistency just off the top of my head from nine wraps to seven wraps or from 10 wraps to six wraps, it's the same number. It's just changed in terms of what they've identified as maybe one type of drug, heroin, and another type of drug, cocaine. So uh, am I thinking right there or am I thinking wrong there? Well, it's all about evidential integrity, isn't it? If somebody's saying that there's nine wraps and I've put it in exhibit bag one and there's uh, seven wraps and I've put it in exhibit bag two, then when that gets to the forensic lab, that should remain as that description. If that's oh, what absolutely, yeah, that, that, that should remain. But if somebody during further investigation discovers that actually it was 10 wraps of heroin and not nine and six wraps of cocaine and not seven and then they've changed the description to clarify the position then although the integrity and the consistency of the evidence gathering is questionable the only reason that it is questionable christopher is that the police are correcting the mistakes they made earlier on which you would expect them to do of course, yeah. So, you know, that, that could also be a possibility. But at the same time, you know, if, you, if you're going to say that my fingerprints are on something, which I know they're not, then I, I want everything to be intact and the, the, no questions about the integrity of the exhibit, because that then that allows me to sh- demonstrate that obviously, look, I'm saying my fingerprints are not there and the integrity of the exhibits is not intact. So therefore, something's obviously taken place. Why did the police say your fingerprints were on the drug wraps? So the, it, it's not a question of why, it's like it's a question of basically the paperwork. So the paperwork is uh, being disclosed uh, and it's it's not intact. So then uh, if you move on to the next bits of paperwork, there's also um, something called a Socrates report. So that's basically a re- forensic report that describes the whole process of it leaving the police station, going to the lab, being handed to somebody. So then you'd get an exhibit reference number on the, the bags. So say one, two, three, four, five is the unique reference seal number for that thing, like to keep it secure. So then when you break that off, you're going to say that I received the bag in one, two, three, four, five, and then I put it into a new evidence bag, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and passed it to so-and-so. So basically, you know, like a, a complete chain of custody. Um, the record of chain of custody is incomplete. 
So it have uh, occasions where the officers will say, took it to the police station and hand it to the, someone uh, will be blank. And the exhibit reference number when it's handed to someone should be recorded as having one, two, three, four, five, but it's blank. So that shows me that the, the bag's actually been open because that person can't keep a continuation of the tag number. Um, also people that it's been passed to it in, within this report is blank and who's received it is blank. So where it is on where it's gone and who's received it is also incomplete as well. So it, it leaves a lot of questions, not only of the wrap change, there's no exhibit seal on it. It's been passed to unknown persons, uh, no signatures on, on uh, of people that received it. So then it starts to become very suspect. Then there's not just one mistake or two mistakes. It's like a whole heap of mistakes of the integrity of the exhibits. Therefore, them telling me that my fingerprints are on there, I'm telling them that something's gone wrong because look at the the, the continuity and the change in numbers and the lack of um, accountability, basically, of, of, of what's happened, where it's gone and who's had it. So there's a massive um, unanswered question in that. So therefore, I say this evidence can't be used in a trial because it's inadmissible. It's compromised. So then we move on to uh, uh, um, the trial day. So on Before the trial you move day, on to the trial day, let's let's make sure that the listeners understand about what you're saying here, because it is a technical issue. And people think that when technical issues are you know, presented in a court, it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is innocent or guilty. I mean, you and I might disagree with that because I think you're right in saying that the integrity of the police gathering of evidence that they then use to present to a jury or to a court to say that somebody is guilty should be above board or at least as much as it possibly can be. But you're saying it's much more than that, that there are a number of different discrepancies and inconsistencies with the police's gathering and movement of the evidence that is crucial in your case. And you believe that somewhere between the police taking those wraps out of the car and taking them to the forensic lab to be examined for fingerprints, that your fingerprints, this is the crux of it, isn't it, Christopher, that you're yeah. saying that your fingerprints were planted on those wraps. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that my fingerprints can't be there because I haven't touched it. So that, that's my defence. So what you've just came back with that argument is how they're trying to make me run a trial. He's saying that basically I accept to explain how they got there or whether they got there lawfully or legally. So I don't think that was fair. So then, as I said, we'll get close to the trial day now and another piece of paper is disclosed. So this is um, supposed to be from a, a, a police officer and they state that they've received the drugs to do fingerprint examinations. And now there's, um, so, uh, you've got the, the three exhibits, um, you've got the nine wraps and the seven wraps. And then they say there's another exhibit um, uh, that's got a, a solid white substance in it. But this has got sellotape and tissue attached to it. So when the officers say that they found a solid substance in a cling film at the original at the start, as well as the nine and the seven wraps, this solid substance substance is now described um, uh, seven months later as having sellotape and tissue attached. So not only am I complaining that the number of wraps are not consistent to what was allegedly found, there's now this, this um, um, solid substance in cling film that, that was des described exactly that, is now described as having sellotape and tissue attached. So, you know, not only is the number of wraps changed, it's contamination as well, because if it's a solid wrap with cling film, that's not the sellotape and tissue attached. But this lady further on down the chain clearly explains that the sellotape and tissue attached. So there's my argument complete that the evidence has been contampered with or it's contaminated or it's, it's dead, basically. It's unreliable. You can't make me run a trial on this sort of evidence because it's bogus. Um, what, what, so, what, what I, I don't understand what you're saying here, Christopher. I understand that you're saying there are issues around the, the gathering of the evidence, but what's the significance of the sellotape and the tissue? 
exactly that. What is the significance of it? So if somebody describes the officer that say he found it in the car, a solid substance in cling film, then you'd expect somebody to be describing a solid substance with cling film throughout the chain of custody. But then you get this lady that's about to do fingerprints and she describes sellotape and tissue attached to it. It's a major change as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's a major change or it's an addition, isn't it? If you found, if you're just noting what you, you found, if, for example, I'm just testing this. And if, for example, I picked up a, a phone, an iPhone, and I described it as my exhibit RR1, Apple iPhone. And then when I hand that iPhone to a forensic expert, they may describe it as an Apple iPhone with a black cover on and numerous scratches on the front of that phone. That doesn't make that exhibit any different to the one that the police originally identified. It just means added detail. And so although it's not consistent, it doesn't necessarily mean evidence has been fabricated. I disagree with, with that because what you're describing is the phone itself and the phone obviously can have scratches on and it can have this. But if you're decide, uh, describing a solid substance in cling film, that's pretty defined, isn't it? So then you'd expect that same description to got be uh, described by anybody that handles that exhibit. But when you're saying sellotape and tissue, that's quite a different, that's like two different items altogether attached to a solid substance and cling film, if that makes sense. They're like different individual items, aren't they? You're not saying, oh, it's the phone, but the phone's got a scratch on it. That's one item. What happened at the trial? Because all this evidence, as you've described, was obviously looked at prior to the trial by your defence team. What happened when you got into trial, Christopher? Basically, I get to the trial and I'm expecting my barrister to make uh, representations to get the case thrown out. So we have a little 20 minute consultation. Now he shows me some more documents and that. And um, I'm arguing with him that this trial can't go ahead. And if they do, I want all these people that have created these documents to come and give evidence under oath and explain all these changes and, and, and whatever to the jury. He says that, oh, uh, these people uh, are not, be, haven't been asked to attend. So I said, how have you got me on trial? You've shown me documents, trying to convince me to go guilty, but you're telling me these people are not going to be attending court. Unless they actually come and support that under oath, it's absolutely worth nothing. So he's like, oh, oh, let's just go upstairs and the trial's about to start now. We've been called up to court. So when we get upstairs, um, rather than the prosecution proving their case, they uh, uh, maliciously make a document called an agreed fact document. Um, I I didn't know this at the time. I'm just sitting in the dock expecting, you know, the case to be thrown out more than anything uh, after arguments and stuff. But instead they stand up and say, I'd like to uh, call the jury in. So then they call the jury in. The trial started and then the uh, barrister and the prosecutor uh, opened the case and they opened the case with an agreed fact document saying that Mr. Kennedy, myself, agrees his fingerprints are on drug wrappings. Now, if you bear in mind what we've just been talking about leading up to it, I've been arguing with everybody saying that these documents are fake and my prints are not there. So I don't agree, clearly. So that for them to do that, I felt like I was a set up. Um, you know, a lot of people trust your legal representation and some people don't pay attention to what's going on. I was paying attention to every single thing that was happening, every single thing that was said, because I had to, because my life was at stake here. So when they said, oh, uh, it's a greed fact document, Mr. Kennedy agrees his fingerprints are on the rats and passed it to my barrister, my barrister passed it to the jury. I immediately stood up and started kicking off, banging the glass, saying I didn't agree with that. And like, basically, you've just set me up and I sacked the barrister immediately for doing so. So the judge then stopped the trial and said, right, what's the problem? I said, well, I don't agree with that. And he sacked and he's like, oh, 
can't do this in court. Go downstairs and try and sort it out. So they put me back downstairs to have a consultation with this barrister. This barrister saying that, well, uh, there's elements of police corruption in your case that I'm not willing to advance because I'm a judge. I'm a crown prosecutor. Um, you need the defence only barrister for this case. So what I'll do, I'll withdraw from the case and I'll allow you to get a defence barrister, which is what you need. I said, all right, thank you, but you sacked anyway. So it's not like you withdrew and I've just sacked you for setting me up. So I expected to go back upstairs and for the trial to be stopped because one, they've misled the jury immediately. And two, I've got no representation at the moment. Um, so, you know, the, the rightful thing to do would be to adjourn the trial to allow me to get representation and, and obviously discharge the jury because they've now been misled with incriminating evidence that should never have happened. That didn't happen. The judge basically said to me, oh, I'm not giving you no more legal representation and you're going to have to represent yourself. So are you ready? So then I've said, come on, then let's do it. <laughs> you're not asking me. You're telling me, aren't you? You're saying I'm not giving you no more representation and no more legal aid funding to do so. You've told me. You haven't asked me. You've told me. But basically, they let me out the dock and they let me stand where the prosecutor stands and the barrister stand. And I literally um, called the three officers that was, was the officers that found it in the car. So they can't give any evidence of me being in possession of drugs or me supplying any drugs. That's a fact. I just continued with asking the questions that I felt relevant and they didn't have any satisfactory answers, to be honest with you. And then I ended up getting convicted to four years imprisonment. You got convicted of what? Uh, possession with intent to supply. What came of your questioning of the fingerprints being on the rat? Basically, I served my whole time. And when I was in, while I was doing the sentence, I ended up getting more disclosure come through. Um, from the CPS post-conviction. Now, um, this was from a forensic scientist saying that she'd visited the vehicle and she'd put aluminium powder on the vehicle door and window and she'd found fingerprints on there and she lifted it off with sellotape and that my fingerprints were found on the car door. So if you, if you, if you look at the chain of events, you can see what's actually happened now. You can see that obviously the exhibit was contaminated originally with tissue and sellotape, but we couldn't work out where that came from. And then after the trial, documents that was available before the trial were disclosed and it showed where the sellotape had actually came from and that it had been lifted off a vehicle with my fingerprints on. So the lady that done the fingerprint examination in the vehicle would have had a lot of documents and that official documents from the examination that would have been given to the officer in charge, the same officer that transported the drugs to the lab, including the sellotape with my fingerprints on. Sure, but the, the, the point is this forensic expert who is supposed to be independent of the police unless they are police forensic experts. Look, he's an, ex, the, he's an, ex, an ex-police officer, the expert in my case. They, they often are, you know, they have some expertise working for the authorities or for the government in some way and then they go independent. But 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 all said and done, this forensic expert turns up at the scene of the the, the crime, if you like, and they take forensic exhibits, label those exhibits. And in this instance, they took your fingerprints from what would be obvious on the car door handles and whatnot. And what are you saying? That those exhibits, the sellotape exhibits with your fingerprints, were then stuck onto the the wraps? Is that what you're saying happened? Yeah, I believe that happened. And not only that, the, uh, the, the documentation for the veal examination was manipulated to make it okay. look like my fingerprints are on, on, on drugs rather than the car. And then okay. the, the car examination was, uh, documents were suppressed till after the conviction. And all that was disclosed was the templates regarding the, the drugs. But they are actually just templates and not official, if that makes sense. I, I don't know what, and I doubt whether my listeners will know what templates are, but why you? Why not the girl who was sitting in the front? Surely it would have been a lot easier to have 
planted her fingerprints on the wraps than yours because she was sitting in the front of the car anyway um, where the wraps I, were found. And that's exactly why I was the target because obviously, as I said, uh, the officer in charge sent a forensic scientist to the vehicle. She came back with confirmation of my prints. So you haven't got anything to, to, to frame anybody else with, have you? Basically looking at it from the officer in charge. You haven't got any evidence to point in the direction of anyone else. But what you have got is sellotape, lifts, fingerprints of me. So what can you do well, with that? Well, surely the girl and the guy that were also in the car with you, alongside the driver who gave you the £500 deposit, all of their fingerprints would have been in the car as well because they were all in the car with you. Potentially, but um, only the driver's window and the driver's door was uh, fingerprints were found. No one else's fingerprints were found on the car. So if you, if you look at it, if you go back to the scratch and you want to charge one of these people, like you say, it could have been anybody, but you haven't got any templates or any DNA of anybody else's within the case. You can't really progress the case against them. It sounds like quite an elaborate conspiracy to target you and none of the other three. Why do you say that was the case? Because it's happened to me <laughs> and it hasn't happened to them. It's a fact, isn't it? It's actually happened. And then obviously I can show you the documentation to support everything that I'm saying. I want a legal representative that's competent, that's not scared to fight against corruption and it's going to take my case forward on the evidence that I've got. A lot of what you've talked about is detail. And it's hard for people to get their head around because you know all of the ins and outs and the intricacies of your case. Are you saying that the drugs that were found in the footwell of the passenger seat were not there when you and all the other people got into the car and exited the car and so the police put it there and then they put your fingerprints on them and then they fitted you up sent you to prison and you've been fighting ever since or are you saying what i believe is that someone else one of the other occupants in the vehicle has dropped it on the floor when the police came and the police have found it and they've just stitched me up with it right so you must know Christopher, which of the other occupants of that car threw those drugs on the floor? Of course, and um, he's willing to come forward and, and, and admit to that as well, but I haven't got a legal team, I haven't got anybody. That well, where was that person up. originally when your fingerprints were being connected with those drugs? If you're saying that the other person who is now willing to admit that they were actually his and not yours, where was mm-hmm. that person at the trial, your first trial? So at the first trial, I wasn't. Uh, I I didn't expect him to do the decent thing and be willing to come forward. And whether he wanted to or not, what you know, was neither here or there to me. The point is, I'm being accused of it, and I can demonstrate why I'm being accused of it. It's because I'm being framed. And so I'm this being, is uh, interesting. This this becomes interesting now because if this person is prepared to step forward and say, "Well, they were my drugs," so he supports your allegation that the police must have put your fingerprints on there because they belong to him um, in the first place. I don't know about the fingerprints bit because obviously he hasn't got knowledge of all that. Only I've got access to that. that No, but I'm saying what I'm saying is if he's prepared to hold his hands up and say, actually, it was me that threw those drugs into the footwell of the car. So the fact that your fingerprints have been found on there suggests that the police planted it or that that was contaminated at the very least because he's saying it was him that the drugs came from. Yeah, yeah. But at the trial, obviously, you know, I didn't expect this level of basically it was the way I see it's corruption um, to be involved. I expected to go to the trial. These people wouldn't be able to prove that my fingerprints are on there because they're not. And I'll be going home. And I was very pretty confident that that's what happened. So you've been out of prison for five years now. 
And yes. in the last five years, what have you been able to achieve in trying to prove that you were not the person who threw those drugs into the footwell of that car? So basically immediately after my release, I, I, I preserved the fire. I kept the fire with me throughout the whole three years, kept it in pristine condition. Um, got out, went to a, a solicitor that said that they can deal with an appeal. They was based in Preston. I went and had a consultation with him for about two hours and went through all the documentation. And his replies to me is that I'm surprised I haven't shut down the West Midlands Police and the CPS. But in any event, leave it with him and he'll get back to me. So I was happy at that because he felt like I had grounds and stuff. Um, and I left the fire with him. Kept calling him, giving him a couple of months, kept calling him. I'm just going through the paperwork. I've got other cases. I've been in court all day and this, that, and everything. Basically just palming me off of excuses of why he still needs more time and more time. And that went on for five years. That went on up until last year, September. If you have the actual guilty person prepared today to come forward and say these drugs actually belong to me, then you have quite a powerful bit of evidence whether the courts will accept that because it may well be that since you've come out of prison you've convinced this individual to put their hands up why that individual didn't come forward at the beginning and put their hands up where are you at now you don't have legal representation you're still complaining about the original evidence that led to your conviction and it sounds like you're obsessed to prove that you should not have gone to prison and that you've been fighting using the documentation for the last X amount of years. But it doesn't sound to me like very many people are believing you. Exactly that. Yeah, it's not even the belief thing that, you know, it doesn't matter who believes me and who doesn't. It's down to the court of appeal at the end of the day, to, uh, who they believe. But um, what I found is that the people that are involved are uh, supposed to be professional people and they're, they're literally liars, uh, dishonest. And again, but not everybody can be dishonest and liars. Surely there are people that have no vested interest in seeing Christopher Kennedy go to prison or for you to be convicted. I, I, I understand if you say the police needed to clear up a case and so there may have been some corruption or, 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 or discrepancies in or planting of evidence or whatever it is that you're saying, a conspiracy. But other people don't have a vested interest in ensuring you're that you're saying other people, who are you referring to? As in, well, I don't people? know. You say, you, say, you say to me that, you know, along the line, people are telling lies. Who are these people that are telling lies? So, in so the, the people that are involved in the conviction, obviously I've got, there's only a handful of people that are involved, aren't there? There's going to be the officer that charged me and pursued it all the way to the court, going to be the prosecutor that carried on a prosecution with no foundation to do so. And then you got my own barrister that had a duty to challenge that. But because he's a Crown prosecutor of 30 years, if he challenges that, then obviously they're up for a malicious prosecution, aren't they? And their own agent has exposed that. So rather than do that, he set me up and then basically left me to it. The judge was disgraceful in his handling of the case. Um, I've basically, I've got like um, where the judge has put in writing saying that, oh, Mr. Kennedy preferred to represent himself. So me using the ground of appeal that was un unfairly unrepresented and that I was disadvantaged is, oh, Mr. Kennedy wanted to represent himself. In fact, he said that he wanted to. You know, that's not the truth. The truth is that I said, can you discharge the jury and can we stop the trial so I can get for representation? I will not be giving you fresh representation. I will not be giving you any more legal aid. Now, that's totally different to me saying that I want to represent myself. So that's misleading, isn't it? That's like a very high credible person of a judge saying that Mr. Kennedy wanted to represent himself. So the ground that he relies upon that he was disadvantaged for representing himself is untrue because he wanted to, but that's not what happened. The truth is that he told me, I'm not discharging the jury. I'm not giving you no more legal aid and you're not getting no more representation. So on that fact, I said, all right, then I'm ready to represent myself. <laughs> you didn't ask me, you told me. 
you okay, see the difference? I, I, yeah, I do see the difference very clearly. So who is Christopher Kennedy? Let's just let's just unpick a little bit about who, who you are. Are you somebody who has previous convictions? Yes, sir. And what are those previous convictions for? Uh, driving and offences. So the, the only previous convictions and, and, that you and, have. And, and possession of drugs for pretty much a similar situation where basically they've uh, stopped a vehicle and found drugs on the floor. And I ended up getting, is when I was young and dumb and I ended up with, you know, believing that solicitors are there to actually uh, defend your best interest. So when they're saying... Well, we're not, we're, not, today, um, we're not unpicking that case. I'm just trying to establish who, who Chris, you know, are you a law-abiding citizen who's never been in trouble with the police before? Or are you somebody who's been in trouble with the police before, which makes your, you know, the picture painted of you very difficult i'm just trying to ascertain what your previous convictions are for so you've got previous conviction for driving offenses and for what intent to supply no just possession of drugs possession of drugs and what were those drugs um cannabis and uh, class a drugs right okay and that was for your own personal use or um no it's pretty much similar situation just stopped in the vehicle and they've been found on the floor and then I end up getting to court and the barristers and solicitors saying that uh, to plead guilty and you'll get this. But if you don't, you'll end up going to intensive supply and you could end up going to prison. So on that advice there, it's mine. But <laughs> was it yours? I have my hands up. No, it wasn't, no. So on two occasions, under two very similar circumstances, you're in a car where drugs are found that you say had nothing to do with you. Yeah. But you, so you, I mean, that's not me saying, oh, yeah, right. But you can imagine that people are going to be saying exactly that. Oh, yeah, of course, Christopher's always innocent when there are drugs found in a car where he's in that car. You can understand that people are going to find it very difficult to believe what you're saying. Not really. No, it's quite, drugs are quite a common occurrent thing in everyday life for a lot of people. And, you know, they're not, there's not a rare thing that only, you know, the most innocent person could be in a situation where there's someone that's taking drugs because it's around, it's around, it's happening every day in all walks of life. Of course, so, of course it does. But I'm talking about just Christopher in your, your situation, Christopher, where on two occasions you were found in a car, the, the drugs were connected to, to you and you have been convicted on both of those occasions. And on both of those occasions, you're saying they were not your drugs, they belonged to somebody else, but nobody else was caught or convicted or charged with, with those offences. I, I don't hold um, I don't hold responsibility for the charging and who to blame, do I? Again, that's down to, to the police, you know. It's up to them who they want to pursue and who they don't want to pursue. But unfortunately, on two occasions, that's it's been myself. And you're saying that you were not guilty on both cases? Both cases. And why should people believe you? It's not about believing me. It's let the evidence speak for itself, isn't it? But if we did that, Christopher, the evidence led to you being convicted by a jury who believed the prosecution's argument rather than your argument. So the evidence, as it stands, suggests that you were guilty of intent to supply drugs because that's what the jury believed regardless of your defense so what do you do now what does somebody like you and there will be lots of other people out there like you are trying to take on these intricacies and i agree with you christopher 100 that the bigger picture shows how all these little things add up to potentially a miscarriage of justice or huge mistakes being made by the criminal justice system which leads the jury to believe the prosecution case so what does somebody like you have to do now to try and prove that you weren't responsible well it's really hard it's time consuming it's draining Um, you've got to uh, study the law yourself because no one's willing to do it unless you've got thousands of pounds 
And as I said, like the Court of Appeal is the only place that can to, can overturn the conviction. But before you go to the Court of Appeal, you've got to make sure you've got all the evidence to do so. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Uh, so that's what I've been literally doing since I came out of prison is gathering evidence and trying to uh, literally prove my case on paper before I submit it to the court and get as much evidence as I can in that supports my, my defence. And could so, I just ask you as a final question, the individual that was in the car with you that is now claiming responsibility, what is he saying? Uh, I haven't really spoke to him, to be honest. Um, to, I haven't even asked him what he's saying. I'm just saying, well, at the end of the day, I'm appealing my conviction. And I think it's the right thing to do that you come forward and hold your hands up because I served time in prison for you, for your for your stuff. And he said he was prepared to do so. How I go about doing that is the most important thing because if I just take a statement off him or he sends a statement in, as I said, the credibility it might not be accepted. So I need it. That's where a solicitor is important to get involved or even the police to take the statement for me. But as of yet, nobody's done that. So that hasn't been done yet, although it's there uh, as an option. Why do you think it's important for people to listen to what you have to say about what's happened to you? Uh, because if you don't, um, and you're expecting um, your solicitors, if you're on the wrong end of, um, of bad representation, you could end up going to prison for something you haven't done. And there could even be evidence there that shows that you haven't done it. But if they don't get that evidence for you or it's not disclosed, um, then you're in a pretty much uh, bad situation and you're probably going to be convicted unless you've got the right representation. So I think representation is one of the most important things that people need to be um, thinking about when they're uh, going to the police station or they're involved in any kind of allegations. Do you see this as your your second chance to to prove that you didn't do what you were convicted of? Yeah, definitely. Because as I said, I've gone full circle in this case, um, and I've you know I've got complained to all the relevant people involved, like you say, and it all falls back on some uh, an expert that didn't attend the trial. Just to clarify this point as well, was that the only evidence against you in this case? Fingerprints on the drugs found in the car. There was no evidence, as in evidence. I don't know what you what I call evidence is proof. That's what I would say evidence is, is proof. Well, I mean, the document presented by the expert, even though the expert didn't talk, turn up at the court, which is crazy because you think that they would. But but this document, was that the only, when I say evidence, I mean. Not a document, it's just a statement. It's a statement saying, I'm Mr. So-and-so. I went to this place. I looked at the drugs. There was no contamination. There was no cont- continuity issues. Kennedy's fingerprints are on, on, on the drug wraps, as suggested by Elaine Jenks. So Elaine Jenks, when you look at Elaine Jenks' statement, there's no signature on it. It says it consists of two pages, and on the two pages, there's no reference to any fingerprints. <laughs> it's a difficult one because, I mean, you go back to the, the, the same point, and the more detail that you give, the more confusing it becomes, and it makes it harder. Thanks for joining me, Christopher, and sharing your story. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to make of it, and that will be up to the listeners as well you know they've listened to you describe what's happened but I think that's why this is important I think it's important that people understand there are people like you out there trying to fight against a wrongful conviction that is beyond most people's expectations but the reality is you are testament to the fact that people like you do exist out there and you find it very very difficult to get your case back to the Court of Appeal or to get people to listen or to get people to even investigate your concerns, even though you've already served time. Is there anything final you want to say? Nah, thank you for your time and appreciate um, for, for listening and stuff. And um, uh, it happens, um, you know, don't trust the system, question everything, believe nothing. 
Listening to Christopher's story is one of those challenges that we, we face because there are plenty of people out there like Christopher who complain that they have been wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully accused of something, but that nobody ever listens to their story. Nobody ever listens to their complaints. There's no means to take on the authorities. Now, the Second Chance podcast is not really a platform for people to use to campaign, but it is a place where I want the voiceless to have a voice, where I want people to have a second chance at telling their side of the story, because we often only ever get to hear one side of the story. And what you've just heard is another side to the story. Whether you believe Christopher or you don't believe Christopher, I think it's important that we hear both sides of the story and give those who are voiceless a voice. Thanks for listening to this podcast and please follow and subscribe. It really will help to keep the podcast going. And please share on social media. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a DM via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. All the links are in the description. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.